Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. Today we welcome writer Margaret Rankle, author of Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. She is currently an opinion writer for the New York Times. For 10 years, she was the editor of Chapter 16, a community of Tennessee readers, writers, and passers-by. We're thrilled to have her here with us today on the Swanee Review Podcast. Margaret, welcome. Thank you for having me, Adam. So I'd, I'd like you to begin with you talking about the book's title, Late Migrations, about where it comes from in the book and about how it speaks to the book's most important themes. The title of the book is a, an adjustment of the title to one of the essays. That essay is called Late Migration, and it's about the butterfly, the monarch butterfly migration. In the fall that year, probably because of climate change, but not certainly because of it, the monarch migration from North America to Mexico, to the wintering grounds in Mexico, was significantly delayed. The migration should have been well underway by September. And in November of that year, I still had not seen monarchs in my pollinator garden. And I had sort of given up that they were going to even come that year. And then one day I saw them. It was one of the most beautiful visions of my life, just monarch after monarch after monarch in the very last of the zinnias, the flowers that were still blooming in November. Um, That essay became, uh, a modified version of that essay became the title of the book because the monarch migration is not like what we think of uh, in terms of wildebeest migrations or songbird migrations because the monarch no one monarch butterfly makes the full cycle no one monarch butterfly wakes up from the wintering grounds in the spring in mexico and makes it all the way to canada and back to mexico at the end of the breeding season they they don't we don't botanists don't quite understand this process yet but the it 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 takes four or five generations of the monarch to make the full cycle. So the, the first round will leave the wintering grounds in Mexico and make it to about Texas, South Texas, find the milkweed it needs to reproduce, lay eggs, and then die. Those eggs will hatch. If all goes well, the caterpillars will turn into butterflies and they will proceed north through some very predictable migratory corridors often through the Midwest, although we get some in Tennessee and Kentucky, then that generation will lay eggs and die. And it it goes like that. Depending on the length of the season, it can take five, I think, maybe sometimes six migrations, generations, excuse me, to, to, to before they turn around and come back. The, the, generation that turns around and comes back is called the Methuselah generation. And they actually live, instead of a matter of weeks, they actually live long enough to get to Mexico, go into a kind of diapause or, or 
almost hibernation. They exist in that state through the winter. It, it sort of occurred to me in the process of putting these essays together and creating a narrative um, that the essays about my family also take up four generations, five, depending on if you count the ones, the people I write about whom I never met because they were long gone by the time I was born. And so I thought that that title, in a way, captured the my hope for the book itself, that we would see, that readers would see in the essays about my family and in the essays about the natural world, that the natural world is part of our family, uh, uh, everybody's family. We aren't separate from the natural world. We are creatures subject to the same biological imperatives of the birds and butterflies that I write about in the book. It's not just about migrating butterflies. It's also about migrating birds. It's also about family generations. That's a fantastic answer. That that would be a fantastic answer if the book were just a book of science, entomology, a naturalist study. I thought what you might do, since we just sort of plunged in Medius Race, as it were, into what was to me one of the most interesting natural details of the book, this multi-generational migration, which equals what we normally think of as one migration or one loop. Right. Maybe you could just, for, for our listeners, explain the basic structure of the book. The book has a through line, and it doesn't feel like essays cobbled together. Each one of the individual pieces in the book stand on its own. Each one is structurally complete. But they do work also as chapters in a longer narrative. It's not clear from the very beginning of the book how the two threads are related to one another. There's a thread, a through line of family. It starts with my mother's birth, it ends with my mother's death. And it follows my own childhood as a part of this very matriarchal family structure that I was born into. My great-grandmother lived in the house with my grandparents um, and, and lived to be 96 years old, so she was still alive when I was a junior in college. And my grandfather, who was uh, not quite an invalid, but very... Um, very slow and and crippled throughout my childhood, hardly spoke a word. So, and my father had no family at all. He was uh, effectively an orphan. His father died when he was five. His mother died when he was 25. He was estranged from his only sibling beginning in his teen years. So that was my family. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister. Those family essays are are tight-knit, very classically, I think, Southern stories of growing up outdoors, um, growing up largely on my grandparents' farmland. My grandfather was a peanut farmer. My grandmother was a school teacher. My uh, my parents lived in a in, in town um, until I was almost seven years old. 
and then moved to the city because so my father could find work. But we spent much of my childhood with my grandparents in this house where my my mother grew up, where my grandfather was born and grew up. It's a I don't know if people still have that kind of family narrative in the South, but it was very common when I was growing up. Even people who lived in cities had grandparents on the farm. My children do not have grandparents on the farm. Uh, So that's one thread. The other thread is uh, centered on the, the natural world outside my home in suburban Nashville. It's not centered on a wilderness, um, but it's very, it's very focused on observations of the natural world. But at some point, it dawned on me that those two threads were deeply connected, partly because I spent my entire childhood outdoors. I was part of that generation of children who grew up entirely unsupervised. We were sent outside after breakfast and told to come home when we were hungry. No one checked on us. No one wondered where we were. We were just left to our own devices out in the world. Because I, t- I take a lot of comfort from the natural world. And when I started writing these essays, my mother had just died and my mother-in-law was dying. And it was, it was a way to step back from the urgency of human mortality to be looking more carefully at what happens in the natural world, which is shot through with mortality. It wasn't just the grief of my mother's loss and my mother-in-law's illness and subsequent loss. And it was also a a kind of grief about what was happening to our country. My mother-in-law died in December of 2014, and Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the the presidency of the United States only a few months later. And I thought that in writing these nature essays and in sort of zeroing in on timeless things that I was taking myself away from what I believed at the time was a temporary blip. We now know that it was not a temporary blip, that this is, that that he um, articulates and embodies a reality about our culture that I naively did not understand. I did not understand that it was there. I thought there were isolated pockets of it, individual people. I did not know that 40% of the electorate shared those views or at least tolerated them. And I, I thought I was distracting myself until he shuffled off the stage and we got back to normal. Clearly, that has not happened. It will not happen. Everybody who's listening to this, who is part of any kind of marginalized group, is going, what an idiot, because this is clearly privilege talking, that I believed that that was a complete anomaly. I really believed that the, the arc of the universe bends toward justice. I, I think I still believe that. I'm not so sure. Well, in some ways, it's not so much that Donald Trump is a a blip or necessarily an an eruption in the arc of the universe bending toward justice, but it contains, I think, one of your most important themes, which is how much of death there is in life, how much darkness and death is necessary to 
illuminate and occasion joy, which is why I return to the idea of setting, as you pointed out, the peace you take in the nat natural world. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about some of the chapters or moments that for you demonstrate that are in some ways things that give you peace now when thinking about these very contentious, if I'm being generous, political times. Part of the timelessness of nature, anybody who pays even the least attention to what is happening in the natural world understands that it is brutal. It is brutal out there. It really is red in tooth and claw. My friend Michael Sims, uh, who has written a number of books about nature, he says nature runs on blood. And it does. It's everything that lives is going to die, sometimes a terrible death. Everything that dies is going to be eaten. And that's undeniable. That's the way our world works. And so for, it's a, it, it's, I think some people would find it maybe odd to take comfort in that reality. But it, to me, it was very comforting to be reminded that what was happening to me in my family life, what was happening to my country politically, was not an anomaly. This We are also part of how this brutal world works. For me, in spite of the ubiquitousness of death, violent death, of wasting death with your family members in certain cases, or of sudden death, of being extraordinarily comforting, all of this grief and loss somehow conveys a certain kind of height and perspective that helps the reader. Talk about birds in the book, both in terms of their beauty and death dealing. Haywood's my husband, says that one day, very early in the morning, I don't recall this, but he tells this story that one, one, one really early morning, I half woke up and informed him, most people like birds because they fly but I like birds because they sing. <laughs> no idea why I felt compelled to make this pronouncement. I must have probably gone right back to sleep, but <laughs> I, don't, I, I do think that probably one of the things I love about birds is song. They're also all um, vicious. Like there's, there's no species out there that isn't territorial during mating season. There's no species out there that isn't ferocious in a defense of its young. There's no species out there that isn't in the fall before the winter comes attempting to hoard resources so that there's enough to get them through through the winter. That's, I don't know, I find that charming. So I grew up in Manhattan so I basically knew four types of birds. Sparrows, <laughs> Sparrows pigeons. pigeons, seagulls, the Hudson, the occasional hawk. Right. But my grandmother, when we go... Starlings. I don't remember ever seeing You definitely knew starlings. Starlings came to North America because some idiot let them loose in Central Park in the 19th century. <laughs> Every starling in the United States, of in North America, is descended from the same 80 starlings. Then I must have thought it was... A dirty sparrow. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, going to Virginia, my grandmother was a big birder. And she 
she essentially anthropomorphized all kinds of birds. She hated blue jays. She just thought blue jays were like the meanest birds there are. They're very mean. They are not meaner than mockingbirds. Oh, is that right? They are not meaner than bluebirds with eggs in a nest. Really? So let me ask you something. If What's your favorite bird? Are you going to ask me what my favorite child is? I don't have a favorite bird. Blue jays belong to uh, a group of birds called the corvids. They're... Um, they, they're in the same group as ravens or crows, magpies. They have a brain-to-body ratio that is closest to ours in the animal kingdom. It's closer to ours than the brain-to-body ratio of the great whales. So they are incredibly intelligent birds, and they have an immense range of vocalizations and you can watch them solve problems and they're gorgeous interesting another really important animal in the book or animals are dogs dogs captivate you in the book and are part of your family's multi-generational saga you certainly write about book dogs regularly for the Times, but I was wondering what you thought of their place in the book. Again, part of the reason I ask, thinking back to setting in the book, is the sort of primary setting, the wrinkle home, is also a home within a home within a home. Chipmunks live below it. Snakes. There's a vulture atop it at some point. Uh, you, you know, the red-tailed hawk that, that patrols the yard uh, relies on the yard uh, for for food. Dogs are kind of in between creatures in in the book. I was wondering if you could just talk about dogs, both in your imagination and in the in the book itself. That's exactly what they are. They're the bridge. They're the bridge species. Haywood and I got our first puppy. Our, not our first dog. Our first dog we adopted as a rescue as an adult. But our first puppy when our children were younger was this rangy hound shepherd retriever mix. He grew up to weigh about 75 pounds, and he was uncontrollable. And I said to Haywood one day, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to sign up for obedience training because I can't control this dog. And he said, who wants a well-behaved dog? And he was, you know, his, his, for him, the misbehavior of the adolescent dog was like, like the life he could not have. You know, it was like the, the dog got to get away with being more animal-like than the adult male in the household did. And I've always thought that was so funny, but I think it's true. I think it's true that dogs are, in some way, they are part of our families, but they are also still ungoverned, and, and they will, you know, shamelessly steal food or do things that we don't ever really allow ourselves to do. So they do make, they do sort of form a kind of bridge. But also, when I was a child, I had, my parents were immensely uh, indulgent. I had every single kind of pet you could possibly have. I had ducklings and chicks and toads and uh, 
gerbils and hamsters and um, salamanders and everything. And parakeets, cockatiels. I had uh, lovebirds. Not all at the same time, but often many different species at the same time. And and I let my kids have a lot of those same same pets. And at some point, I think when not long after my guinea pigs, I forgot the guinea pigs. Not long after my father got sick, I I lost heart for anything that needed to live in a cage. We kept we let our birds fly around the house. We let the duckling wander around, but but ultimately they had to go back to a cage at night and. I made a sort of a vow that I wasn't ever going to have an animal in a cage again. So the only animal currently living in our house is a dog, and that's been true for 20 years. And so I think that's probably part of it too, is that there's a distinction. I'm drawn toward zoology, but I only have the one creature who shares the inside of my home. Another thing that the book is about that's very striking, it's very striking about your family. And I'm not just saying this as the author of Mr. Peanut. Where is this going, Adam? (laughs) Are all the amazing marriages in the book. The marriages in the book are all so solid. There's such a sense of warmth and fellowship and partnership between the respective couples and it's it comes through in the times when your husband Haywood makes an appearance and that just seems part of the it seems one of the central characteristics of the wrinkle species and so what I was wondering was what made for a good marriage and maybe how that's passed on generation to generation I think probably some of it is. I think if you grow up in a house where your parents are happy together, you learn some things about how good marriages work. I don't think there's one way a good marriage. I think there are a lot of ways marriages work. In in my parents' marriage, they were my parents were laughing constantly. They la- they made each other laugh constantly. My father could hear my mother laugh from another room and laugh, start laughing uncontrollably without even knowing what had amused her. The sound of her laugh made him laugh. That's a great moment in the book, by the way. So that was one thing, I think. They were also um there's dancing. There's a they were they loved to dance. What my mother once explained to me that the reason she was 30 years old before I was born is that she and dad didn't want to stop dancing. Um, I don't think that was the real <laughs> entirely the reason, but that was one reason. I don't know. They just enjoyed each other, and and if you know from having read the book, it's it wasn't all sweetness and light. There were terrible things to have to overcome. They my mother's my mother was severely prone to depression. My father was a quite unsuccessful businessman, and and there was a lot of stress around insufficient funding for there was one there was one winter where we didn't have a refrigerator we had to keep our food in a cooler on the on the back porch that that was not 
easy, but they laughed all the way through it and they loved each other all the way through it. And I think that was, that's a, that's a good pattern to see. My oldest son recently became engaged and even before that relationship was formalized in that way, we love, Haywood and I love to watch them together because they, they laugh all the time. That's interesting though, because you don't, in the book, your mother's depression has a has a kind of off-stage quality. It only occasionally takes center stage. There's that there's that really powerful ch- chapter or essay where the dad confronts you and says, you know, did you tell your mother you didn't love her anymore, if I remember correctly? And it's such a window in on the depressed mind because you have no recollection of saying any such thing. Well, I didn't say it. She drew that conclusion. That's the tragic parallelism of living with somebody with depression, right? But there's also, it, it's one of the, it's actually one of the moments in the book where you almost nudge up against the political or the proto-feminist, if, if you would, because you talk about how in some ways you seem convinced that if your mother was born a little bit later or born in your generation maybe depression wouldn't have been licked because you struggled with it as well right but it might have been mitigated no doubt talk about that in in alabama and what part to talk about what what part of alabama we're talking about lower alabama um i was born in andalusia alabama my mother was born in clopton alabama my grandmother was born in bertha alabama that's a a pretty small geographic region. Um, Andalusia is an actual town. The others are just farming communities, crossroads, really, with a little, with a church and a general store. In, tho- in those days, a woman who was married and had children too young to be in school could not, were forbidden to work for the state of Alabama. So no school teachers. My mother's job, my mother, grandmother was a school teacher. My mother was a home demonstration agent with the County Extension Service, and she loved her job. She traveled all around rural Alabama with, in, with, with pattern books in the trunk of her car and pamphlets about safe canning practices, and she taught rural women the latest understanding about health and fashion and all manner of home maintenance so when she was pregnant with me she had to leave her job she was never happy as a stay-at-home mom but she was forced into the role of stay-at-home mom because that's what the, the employment opportunities were limited so limited in fact that at one point my dad's secretary my father was selling real estate at the time and his secretary left, and mom uh, talked him, I don't know how, into letting her fill that role. And she did not know how to type, and she did not know how to take dictation, and she was um, so opinionated that any kind of interaction with a, a client who was disagreeable in any way didn't generally go well if my mother was involved. So it was it was a disaster. It didn't last very long. But yeah, that's those, scenes, those scenes weren't in the book. <laughs> no, they're not in the book. <laughs> but she uh, she just I think if she had she was just 
lively and vivacious and curious and funny and such a, in a way, um, a larger than life figure that staying home with small children was just boring. But that, but, but so that's what's interesting. And another, that's what's interesting to me thematically. And I don't know how aware you were of this, but the book, in some ways, is about failed migrations. Hmm. I mean, you have a failed migration to Philadelphia, if you think about it. Terribly failed. If you'd run with my interpretation and take the idea of migration and, you know, look at your mom through that lens, but also then talk about your own failed migration. I would say that it depends on how you think about migration. I I mean, in another way, it was a hugely successful migration well, yes, because I, I made it safely back, <laughs> <laughs> which there was a little bit of time there when I wasn't sure that was going to be the case. No, I left. I grew up in Alabama. I went to college at Auburn. When I was in high school, this was what people did. You took the, the ACT and you checked the box about where, where you wanted to send the scores and you could check two boxes for free. I checked Alabama and Auburn. A few weeks later, I got letters from both of them saying I had been admitted and then I just picked. It was no college search. I had never been farther north than Chattanooga, Tennessee when I left to go to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. I was so, I had never been in a city larger than Birmingham and I didn't even go into downtown Birmingham for the first time until I was a high school graduate. I went to graduate school to study British literature. Right. To get a PhD in British Romanticism. And, you know, my professors were thrilled. This was really kind of a coup that they were sending sending me off to the Ivy League. There were several other young women in my class who were also going to graduate school to get a PhD in literature, and they were all going to great places also. And I don't think I gave any thought to it, really. I just thought, well, this is what people did. They, if they wanted to, to study literature, you, you just went to the best school that you got admitted to. That was Penn for me. And it was a disaster. It was a colossal disaster, partly because there's such a big difference between studying literature at the graduate level and studying it as a generalist undergraduate major, and partly because I just am not constitutionally capable of living in a city. The, the noise, the smells, the the lack of wildlife and plants. It was the most dislocating experience of my entire life. And I lasted one semester. It comes through <laughs> really powerfully, the, the level of dislocation. Not that I didn't see advantages. I loved going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I loved seeing the temporary exhibits and the permanent collection of art I could only have imagined seeing in Alabama. I loved, I went to an art house um, theater for the first time in my life. It suddenly became clear to me that there were really interesting films being made that had nothing to do with Wookies. You know, it was just kind of an, an amazing <laughs> eye-opening experience for me and I could and I wanted so badly to love it. I still have letters that I sent to my brother he, who saves everything and to my parents and it you can read in So this, your brother is like your mother. Uh we're is all you, hoarders really okay, yeah. in a way. Um <laughs> We just hoard different things. <laughs> but 
Uh, he saves every letter. Now I understand why the chipmunks under the house. <laughs> exactly. I'm hoarding <laughs> chipmunks at my house. These are, my, pe- these are my people. <laughs> yes, but yeah, I mean, you can you can you can hear in my vo- in the in in these letters home uh, how desperately I was trying to convince myself that this was a great gift. Oh, that's funny. Although I will say. It's news to me, and it confirms something for me. I don't know if this was intentional, but to hear that you studied British Romanticism, I'll tell you what book from British Romanticism this late migrations reminds me very much of, and that's Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience. Hmm. I was thinking more of lyrical ballads, but I see that too. Yeah. In any moment of innocence, it's the specter of experience is right there. And similarly, when the specter of experience becomes overwhelmingly dark there's the salvation of innocence the great thing about blake is that he's not positing that one is true and one is imaginary that one narrative that our culture especially is fond of that you take the blinkers off your eyes and you see the truth but that's not true both are true that essay that you mentioned where my father pulls over into the Church of Christ parking lot and says, your mother thinks you don't love her. That's partly about my mother's depression and her propensity to kind of catastrophize every everything when she was in a state. But it was also about the state of being adolescent. Obviously, I grew up to write a book about how much I loved my parents and the family I grew up in, but I was not at 17 thinking of them at all Mm -hmm. they were completely invisible to me because that was not the focus of my life at that age but that's an important thing to remember oh yeah our kids are gone because that's what's supposed to happen but the way it dovetails with the book is almost kind of angle of repose right you're looking at other things then it's only in memory that you put together the pieces which is interesting it's partly true that it's only a memory, but it's not entirely so because my mother moved into the house across the street from us, a rental house, and lived there for the last years of her life. She could not afford assisted living. So Haywood and I and the kids were her assistants, and she needed help. We had to unplug her stove. It was not safe for her. She had a microwave. She had a coffee maker. She ate supper at our house every night. She took a Tupperware home with her that was her lunch. I drove her to her doctor's appointments and her hair appointments a little bit later on. She was still driving a little bit when she first came. So in a way, almost from the moment, there's that essay where I take baby Sam, my firstborn, down. I was still on maternity leave from teaching, and I took him down to see my parents. And that's the conversation I had with my mother, where she explained that she had never meant to be a stay-at-home mom. That was forced upon her. A story I had never heard up to that point. But really, I think the circle started returning when I had my own children. There's a point, maybe comes to everybody at a different time in their lives, but at some point, every child stops thinking of their parents as parents and comes to recognize that they're people. I would argue that that's maybe one of the most important forks in the road between personal health and well-being (laughs) and permanent misery. True. It's a moment of atonement where... You forgive your parents. You forgive them. Because you you recognize that they were just doing the best they could at the limits. But Lord knows, I know many people, and you write about this very powerfully, let's just say the desire for them to remain parents can sometimes inflame you with anger. Maybe people who don't have parents who made them feel safe don't experience that. I don't want to assume that this is a universal feeling because I know that 
for some people, some people were not safe in their homes and some people did not feel safe, but I did. And I think when you have that sort of foundation of safety and security and love, surrendering it, either because it turns out you never were safe, not because your parents were necessarily dangerous, but because your parents were human and they could not keep you safe, or because they need you now. Either way, that's a hard gift to give back. It's hard to let go of it. It's hard not to want to feel safe. It's hard not to want to feel that somebody could fix it for you if you needed it. And my father got sick when I was 39. So I did not know anybody else who had lost a parent. I did not know anybody else who was, uh, my youngest child was two years old. I did not know anybody else who was coping with this. And I did feel sorry for myself. I felt terribly sorry for myself. I felt sorry that I was trying to raise very young children and work full time and help my mom take care of my dad. And I was sorry for myself that I was losing the parent who was the the grown-up in the house, really. And so it wasn't about me. I knew it wasn't about me. It was about him and his suffering. And yet there were times when that's how I felt. I wanted to shift away from late migrations specifically and talk about your role as an opinion writer for the New York Times. How do you think of yourself as a Southern writer in that cohort? Or what does the South have to say to America right now? I don't know, Adam. I wish I knew. I don't think it's instructive for me to see myself as any kind of voice for this region, because I don't think this region is in any way uniform. The diversity that we have here, I don't think many people outside the South recognize it. I don't think people who have never lived here understand that it isn't 1940. This is actually where I wanted you to go with that. My parents, and they're going to kill me for saying this, but they're Manhattanites, and they'll still say things to me like, oh, you know, the the new Avengers movie is out. Did you get that down there? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course we did. But maybe that's part of what the South has to say. I think if I had to say what my my own personal goal for the column is to undercut in every way I possibly can stereotypes about the South. Not that the stereotypes don't have some truth to them and a lot of truth to them. There are racists here. There are homophobes here. And there are a lot of them. They're in great numbers. They control the state houses of every single state in this region. But that is not all that's here. And so I think that's one of the things that I want to do is as much as I can to look at things that are happening here that might not be something anybody reading the op-ed section of the Times would run into otherwise. You just stepped down, but for 10 years you were the editor of Chapter 16. I'd love you to share with our audience what Chapter 16 is, but maybe also talk about what it's taught you, not just about the literary life in Nashville, but your own view of what the state of literature is in America. I'm not asking for something highfalutin. I'm just talking about all for the last 10 years. I mean, I know I know when my books came out, it was 
it was a thrill to be covered by chapter 16 because it was just so high quality and and rigorous but some of the most important work of the last 10 years most of it is has passed through your editorial doors so i was wondering if you could talk about that chapter 16 was not my idea i was the founding editor but it wasn't my idea and it's a really a brilliant idea but Humanities Tennessee, which is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, puts on a wonderful book festival every October, the Southern Festival of Books. It's always held in Nashville the second full weekend in October. Humanities Tennessee is also the Tennessee affiliate of the Library of Congress's Center for the Book. Every state has a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Every state has an affiliate for the Library of Congress's Center for the Book. They aren't always the the same affiliate, but in Tennessee they are. It's Humanities Tennessee. There were simultaneously some conversations going around before I ever entered the scene. I was editing the book section of of the Nashville scene by that time. They were looking for pondering ways to... The Nashville scene, I should say, is Nashville, Tennessee's alternative weekly newspaper. Yes. And so Humanities Tennessee was looking for ways to continue and enrich relationships with the publishing community that were formed in connection with the Southern Festival of Books and then lying fallow for another several months until it was time to gear up for the next festival. And also trying to figure out the best way to be the center for the book in Tennessee. And somebody somewhere came up with the idea of starting a website that would be a a digital center for the book, but also a way to continue to uh, develop and promote literature in the state of Tennessee between book festivals. At the time these conversations were first starting, and they unfolded over a couple of years is my understanding, newspapers were folding their book sections. So the Tennessean had stopped covering books. The uh, the other daily newspapers in the state were using wire service um, uh, book coverage. And even the Nashville scene ultimately shuttered its book page and fired me. And so these things were happening kind of two different sets of concerns. What are we going to do about the fact that local writers in Tennessee suddenly had no media coverage at all. There are very few writers in the state of Tennessee who are going to get reviewed by the Washington Post or the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times. Very few of them are going to get reviewed by NPR. But it used to be, at least, that you could count on your local daily paper, your local all-weekly, to cover your book. And your community would find out about that book in, in some way through the local media. And that was no longer the case. It was tied, I think, in part to how many independent bookstores were closing and were no longer advertising with those newspapers. It was, it was tied in part to just the contraction of the newspaper industry generally. But at some point, somebody had the idea at Humanities Tennessee... I suspect it was probably Serenity Gerbman who would not claim it um, because she's so she's so self-effacing. She's the director of the Southern Festival of Books. But she, uh, somebody came up with the idea of putting all that together into a website where editor would assign book reviews and author interviews and request excerpts from forthcoming books by writers in Tennessee and by writers who were coming through Tennessee to give a reading at a bookstore or a library or a university. I'll say this, Adam, when we when we launched Chapter 16 in 2009, it was not originally intended to be a daily publication because Frankly, I didn't think there were gonna, was going to be enough to cover. I just did not see it 
how are we going to fill that that slot day after day after day with just what happened in Tennessee and it turns out if there's any reason that anybody ever got mad at me when I was the editor of chapter 16 it was because I could not assign coverage of their book because there was too much happening mm-hmm. and we were publishing every single day and um so I, I don't think that literature is in any danger. I actually don't. And I also think that um, there's been a kind of synergy in Nashville specifically, but not just in Nashville, um, where the book tour circuit that starts often in Manhattan and swings down the East Coast, it takes a, a, a curve um, around the you know triangle area of north carolina and heads west to us and then down to square books and um and further into mississippi well yeah to you La- know, La- La- Maria, Maria, yeah and then, then yeah. to uh and then into jackson and then yeah. not jackson uh into uh greenwood so really from all the way you know asheville in western north carolina to to knoxville down to chattanooga up to back up to nashville over to memphis and down and down to oxford that's a a great swoop for uh, a writer with a book and a publisher putting some resources into a book tour. And so we do get in Tennessee to see some great authors, not necessarily who live here, but also we have some great authors who live here. You know, you don't write about the South specifically, but you are a Southern writer. And for chapter 16, if you ever lived in Tennessee, you're a Tennessee writer. And, you know, with with uh, the fantastic MFA program that Vanderbilt has, the Ph.D. program that the University of Tennessee, the Ph.D. in, in creative writing that University of Tennessee offers, it's kind of amazing the writers who are who who either were born, live or trained in Tennessee. Correct. And then not and, and then also not to mention the centrality of Parnassus as a stop. I mean, yes, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing now who blows through town. Yeah, and we get we get those people, but we also get a lot of people who are not still not being reviewed in the New York Times Book Review. But you know, one of the things that Chapter Sixteen does that I think is the most important, um, the most important feature of the site is that it funnels content to the newspapers of the state for free they don't pay for it so if claire vay watkins is going to be in chattanooga the chattanooga times free press has a book review they can run so the people in chattanooga know about that that event you know one of the real revelations for me of moving to nashville was the possibility of a viable literary slash writing life when i first moved to nashville i had lived in the midwest i had lived for a short period of time on the West Coast. I grew up in the Northeast. But no place hit me so hard with its culture in terms of just classic culture shock as when I first moved to Nashville. And yet, reading the Nashville scene in the late 90s, or the mid to late 90s, and then coming on board and working there in the early aughts, but reading the Nashville scene in the mid to late 90s was to read writers who who literally located me existentially in a place 
I don't think I could have been a writer if I hadn't moved here. It, 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 it's as if I owe the South my writing life. I was wondering if you ever felt the same way. In other words, you were allowed here to be a late bloomer. To, to, to stay with a natural list metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, I guess so. Again, but but unlike you, I I don't really I don't really have anywhere else. I do, you know. I I think probably that sense of place is still a very defining Southern characteristic. It's not all sweet tea and magnolia blossoms and swinging slamming screen doors. Margaret Rankle, thank you so much for being with us on this one Review podcast. This was fun. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Sewanee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Sewanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesewaneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sewanee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynana, and sound engineer, Alex Martin with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is the Swanee Review, new since 1892.